This is Take Care, a health and wellness show produced by WRVO Public Media. I'm Katherine Loper. And I'm Jason Smith. Diagnosis is a collection of stories from the New York Times Magazine's popular column of the same name. You may recognize it because it's also a Netflix original series. Dr. Lisa Sanders is behind the diagnosis column. She's also an internist on the faculty of the Yale University School of Medicine. She's author of the book Diagnosis, as well as Every Patient Tells a Story. So there seems to be quite the interest in medical mysteries at the moment. Other newspapers have started columns similar to yours, and there are other television shows, too. Why do you think there's such an interest in the topic right now? Well, that's a really good question. I I don't know that I'd ever thought about it. When I first started writing this column in 2002, I wrote it because I thought it was the most interesting story out there, and I still do. So I can only say that I guess other people agree with me. I think that there's a lot of interest in these mystery stories, maybe because people hope that, you know, if they ever get sick, that somebody like the people in my columns will figure it out for them. But I think really it's just the satisfaction of a mystery story that comes together with that satisfying clunk at the end that I think really draws people in. And like you said, it offers some hope for things that mystify us that can really have some serious consequences on health. Yes, but, you know, most people are not the subject of extraordinary diagnoses. Most people have something regular and they are diagnosed easily. I don't think it's a very common problem, but I think that if it does happen to us, we want to know that we can get over it. Somebody will figure it out. Right. And so for those who haven't read your column, can you describe how it works? Yes. I tell the story of a patient who presents for medical attention with symptoms that are mystifying, either mystifying just to the patient or often mystifying to a whole string of doctors the patient has seen before she sees this particular doctor. And I'm really interested in how a doctor figures out a complicated problem. And so for me, having people who have missed it in the past is a way to indicate to my readers that this really is a complicated problem. Now, sometimes my readers don't see it that way. Sometimes my readers think, oh, these moron doctors. (laughs) I don't know why that happens. I never write about doctors who make dumb mistakes. I'm only interested in complicated problems and how we figure them out. So it always starts with the patient then goes more or less to the doctor, and then it always ends with figuring out what's going on. And usually, 99% of the time, the patient getting better and going on. And you get people who write in and offer their opinions on what might be going on as well, correct? I used to. My column in the New York Times Magazine is called Diagnosis. I've written that for 18 years. During that time, For about six years, I wrote a column called Think Like a Doctor, which was in the online version of the New York Times science section. And then I presented solved cases. I would tell the story right up until the point before the diagnosis was made so that everybody had access to all the data that the doctor had and then stop and say, what do you think is going on? And people would write in. I mean, like hundreds of people would write in. It was really amazing. And then the next day I would give what the answer was and how it was figured out. It was a lot of fun. Wow, that's interesting. So for both that column and and your current one, these cases that are very complicated, is it sometimes a misdiagnosis or more than one thing going on? What are the kinds of things that it ends up being the solution? 
I try to make sure that it is only one diagnosis, and often it's something that's unusual. It's either an unusual medical problem or it's a pretty common problem that presents in a different way. But for me, the issue is, in some ways, how mistakes are made and how we figure it out. Do patients come to you because maybe they can't get an accurate diagnosis where they are? You know, not everyone lives near a top-of-the-line medical center. Or was there just sort of a lack of -of out-of-the-box thinking by a lot of clinicians? Well, I don't solve most of the patients' stories that I write about. Usually, they come to me, and what I ask for is solved cases, um, because there are doctors who are brilliantly figuring these things out everywhere. Fortunately, all I have to do most of the time is write about them, so I have the easy part. So those patients have gone through a journey trying to find out what their diagnosis is. Those patients and usually a doctor along with them, although not always. Sometimes the diagnosis is made by a nurse or a nurse practitioner. All kinds of people can make a diagnosis. Sometimes the patient themselves will figure it out. Has technology impacted people's ability to try to diagnose themselves? We didn't have to wait for technology to try and diagnose ourselves. That has been something that we have participated in from the beginning. Before there was the Internet, there was our mother and our best friend and our spouses. I mean, routinely, well before you go to see a doctor, you ask everybody you know, hey, is this something I should be concerned about? What do you think this is? The Internet is just the newest version of how we seek answers when our body isn't performing the way we're used to having it perform. I think it's a good way because uh, it makes available a lot of excellent information at your fingertips. What's bad is when you're asking your friends and your family, you know who is a little bit goofy, whose word you're not necessarily going to take, and who the reliable sources are. You just know that because they're part of, you know them. On the internet, as they used to say, nobody knows you're a dog. Behind the answer could be just about anybody. So I certainly encourage people to look for reliable sources. And how do you know a reliable source? Well, to be honest, for patients, I would say many reliable sources are the ones that end in .gov, .gov. You know, the NIH has some fantastic outlets for information. The CDC has some wonderful resources. If you don't know where it's coming from, then you don't know how reliable it is. Is there, you know, a story that you can share with us that sticks out as symbolic of all the many stories you've told over the years? Good Lord. Um, You know, I mean, you know how it is when you're writing. Whatever you're working on that very moment is the most interesting thing ever. Um, Well, I'll tell you one where the disease wasn't a rare disease. I mean, I write about rare diseases often. I can't tell you how many times I've written about a pheochromocytoma, which, you know, is extremely rare, but it's a really great disease. But a couple of years ago, I wrote about a woman who grew up in Kenya, came to the United States, has lived here since she was 15, and went back to Kenya with her two kids because she wanted them to see where she had grown up. She made sure that she and her children got the shots that were needed, took the prophylaxis for malaria, you know, did all the things you're supposed to do. But when she got back, she started to feel ill. She felt like she had a fever. She felt like her heart was racing. So she went to see not her doctor who was out of town, but a doctor in that practice. And she said, I think I have 
malaria because I feel really bad and I had malaria when I was a kid and I think I felt just like this. And so if you see a patient with a fever within the first four to six weeks after returning from a place where malaria is endemic, like many parts of Africa, well, then malaria is very high on the list of things you might have. And so even without getting a test to see if she actually had malaria, that doctor treated her for it. She didn't get any better. And so that started what was basically a year of looking for an answer for why she felt so terrible. And she did feel terrible. Her heart was racing. She was hot all the time. She lost weight like crazy. She was having a hard time taking care of her children. And finally, she went to a lot of infectious diseases, doctors and specialists who, you know, were thinking, well, if it's not malaria, because she had many tests for malaria and they were never positive, if it's not malaria, what could she have picked up when she went home and brought back that we haven't been able to treat or find? She finally went back to her own doctor, her regular doctor, Dr. Maria Brown. And Dr. Brown, who knew her, noticed that her thyroid gland was very large, something that is very common in people to have what's called a goiter. But she happened to know that this woman didn't have a goiter. And so she diagnosed her with something that's very common, hyperthyroidism, an overactive thyroid, very common. And what was interesting to me about that is why did so many smart, thoughtful doctors get it wrong? I mean, really, she saw probably a dozen doctors in that year. And it's because how the question was framed really leads you towards an answer. And, you know, the patient accidentally triggered this malaria pathway so that everybody was so focused on that that they couldn't think about other possibilities. And that's one of the things that happens to human beings and doctors among them. And you mentioned it took a year. You must see a lot of the toll that it takes on these patients and their families when they are going without a diagnosis for a a certain period of time. Absolutely. And in fact, I recently completed a series of documentaries for Netflix about patients who came to us because they were in search of a diagnosis. And I was interested in showing how the diagnostic process worked and using something that I used in my Think Like a Doctor column, crowdsourcing, to see if we could come up with answers based on what lots of people thought, tapping the brains of a lot of smart people, as many smart people as we could find. That was an interesting experiment. I mean, it was eight really amazing stories of these patients and their families and their search for a diagnosis. Is there anything you think that the medical profession needs to do as a whole to do better to diagnose rare diseases and conditions? Or is this just something that, you know, medicine is as much an art as a science? I do think that we can get better at this. One of the things that I am thinking these days, I didn't used to think this, but I wonder whether diagnosis itself should be a specialty. It used to be that people came to the doctor for acute problems. They got an infection or they broke their arm or, you know, things that were time limited. You came in, you were sick, you got treated, you got better, you moved on. These days, most doctors see most patients because of chronic diseases, not a broken arm, but diabetes or high blood pressure. And because of that, what we've needed our specialists, our internists, who know a lot about chronic diseases. 
We used to be specialist internists, people in internal medicine, used to be the person that you would go to when you had a mystery illness. You know, when your doctor couldn't figure you out, they would send you to an internist. Those days are over. Most internists are very well trained to take care of chronic diseases. Not so good at necessarily, or they certainly haven't gotten a lot of training in how to think of the things that are off the beaten track. And we all know that the person who has seen a disease before is the person most likely to make a diagnosis of something that's unusual. So I think that maybe making diagnosis itself or difficult diagnoses themselves an area of specialty might be useful. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.